Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Where does this love, where does this obsession with veganism come from? A lot of people will be quite surprised to find that there's actually a religious undercurrent to this uh, by way of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So Sanitarium, the cereal company, is wholly owned by the Seventh-day Adventist church. And they're very profitable, uh, helped by the fact that they pay absolutely no taxes. It's a religious organisation. G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Cancel Me Now podcast. My name is Isaac Butterfield. If you're new here, please subscribe wherever you happen to be listening to this, whether it's on YouTube, Spotify, Apple iTunes, something else, who gives a rat? It doesn't matter. The the most important thing is you're listening to it. So hello and welcome. Uh, On today's episode, we have a very interesting gentleman, Dr. Paul Mason. Now he is a expert when it comes to the low carb lifestyle, I think. And I think it's important to run with the term lifestyle rather than diet. Um, It is a different way of living your life. It sort of goes against everything that you're used to. And it's something that I've employed in my life for a long time. Uh, I'm not on a low carb diet at the moment. I'm actually pigging out like a big fat piece of shit that I am. Um, But I tell you what, it is something that I've really enjoyed uh, implementing into my life uh, over the past five or so years. So I think people are going to get a lot out of this conversation. This dude uh, is not only an expert when it comes to nutrition, but also when it comes to the way that the human body works. Uh, f- according to his website here, he has uh, he has a master's in occupational health. He holds degrees in physiotherapy, and he did, and he obtained his medical degree with honors from the University of Sydney, and is currently a specialist registrar in the Australian College of Sport and Exercise Medicine. He's worked with the Penrith Panthers, Sydney FC, and the men's uh, Australian. And men's water polo team and the Futsal Ruse, whatever that is, um, but it sounds impressive. So, this guy is a very interesting gentleman to have on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, for those of you who haven't uh, heard the great news, our Patreon levels have changed. There are now two tiers on Patreon. I'm excited, okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's why I can't speak. If you haven't become a part of the Patreon community, there is a, a level, a tier for all of you. The $1 tier, that gets you access to this show live. The $7 tier, the second tier, gets you access to it live, but you're seven times better than the peasants who only pay $1. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before we go any further, this episode is brought to you by the great people at manscaped.com. If you didn't know, all right, I use Manscaped every day. You hear that? Hear that buzz? That's how I stay sexually attractive to absolutely everyone who has ever lived on this planet, ladies and gentlemen. You need to get your hands on the Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped because I tell you what, not only does it have the Lawnmower 4.0 to get those short and curlies under control, it also has the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Ball Toning Spray to get those box and dice smelling fucking amazing. 
Don't know if that blew out your ears. I'm sorry if it did. But I tell you what, Manscaped are a great sponsor of not only the podcast, but my uh, main channel as well. And they've been around for a long time. I really, really have a lot of time for these people. They're good people. And I tell you what, get your hands on the performance package, maybe even for uh, for Valentine's Day, Lordy. That's coming up. Maybe you need one of those. If you're a lady and you're listening to this and your husband, and your, your filthy husband or your boyfriend looks like shit, you need to get him onto the Manscaped stuff as well. Dixon's laughing upstairs because it's all too true, isn't it, darling? Yes, I am a filthy pig with a hairy, hairy crack and ball sack, but I tell you what, not anymore since I got onto the Manscaped 4.0, uh, Lawnmower 4.0 and the performance package. It is absolutely amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, head to manscaped.com forward slash Butterfield to get an amazing discount and free shipping because, ladies and gentlemen, they look after us, so let's look after them. So let's head on to now, onto the show with the amazing and the very interesting Dr. Paul Mason. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, mate. Um, it's uh, great to have. I'd love to have you here in person. Uh, I had the Roan, so we couldn't do it. But, uh, mate, could you introduce yourself to everyone watching? To give, I gave you a bit of a rap at the start, but it was probably awful. Please introduce yourself. Let me know uh, exactly who you are, where you come from, all that type of business. What brought you into this field? Well, I'm uh, Dr. Paul Mason. I'm a 42 year old doctor, and personally. I used to have metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is a constellation of uh, where you've got at least three of uh, high blood pressure, high blood sugar levels, low HDL levels, high triglyceride levels, or, you know, you're fat around the middle. And in my thirties, I used to have that and uh, wasn't something that I was particularly fond of. So I developed an interest in nutrition. And uh, as a result of that, I went on my own personal health journey and with some success too, I might add. And now I've uh, become a bit obsessive with it and uh, quite passionate about sharing it with others. So in my professional life, I'm a sports and exercise medicine physician. So I'm working with elite athletes. I'm working with members of the public with injuries. I'm working in metabolic health. Uh, I've also got a degree in physiotherapy and master's in occupational health. And uh, that keeps me pretty busy. So the, when, I, when I Googled you for the first time, I saw... Uh, criticism straight away saying that you are a physio and nothing more and no one should listen to you. In a past life, that could have been true. Here's the thing. When I used to be a physio, I used to give the bog standard advice and for that I hold my head in shame. Quite honestly, what most people don't realise is that mainstream conventional wisdom on nutrition has been corrupted by outside forces and I was victim of that as much as most other doctors are today. Mm. So, uh, I mean, the irony of that is that when I was a physio, um, you know, any nutritional advice I'd given you wouldn't have been worth 10 cents. Yeah. So what, what have you, what have you done education wise past that to basically I'm, I'm coming from the devil's advocate side of thing because people, people are going to see you and the things we talk about in this podcast and go, this bloke isn't worth listening to because he's not this, this, and this you've studied nutrition you are a doctor. You've gone on and furthered your education past uh, your physio. Not saying that physio isn't a, obviously it's a very important part of uh, one's well being. I see a physio all the time, but in 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 the sense of what we're speaking about in this particular podcast, you have gone on. You've furthered your research. You've done your own um, your own side of 
investigating from your point of view, but also through university as well? Well, yeah, exactly. So, look, I've got a physiotherapy degree. I've got a master's degree in occupational health. I've got a medical degree. I've got a four-year full-time fellowship in sports and exercise medicine. Uh, and then on top of that, I've done literally thousands of hours of personal study. Okay. Now, I do have to say, though, that the conventional study on nutrition, which I have done, for the most part, has been fundamentally flawed. It's just been wrong. It's been backwards. And this is the problem that most people don't realise that getting your nutritional advice from a doctor is the same as asking your local vet how to make a cake. They're just not going to give you sensible advice. So how long, in a medical degree, the average medical degree, um, how long do you spend on nutrition? I estimate we had a good hour. Over what, an eight-year degree, six, five-year degree? What is it? No, no, that, that was a postgraduate four-year degree. Okay. And so- most medical degrees would be very, very similar. But that isn't the, the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is that the little nutrition education you get is usually fundamentally flawed. Yes. So, look, let's think of it like this. So I had a 71-year-old patient who'd come into me with multiple problems diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, high blood pressure on multiple drugs, what we call polypharmacy. Anything when you're taking more than five drugs is called polypharmacy. He changed his diet. He reversed his diabetes. He no longer met the diagnostic criteria for diabetes. He put his inflammatory bowel disease into remission. He normalised his blood pressure. He stopped five separate medications And then he went back to his regular specialist, an endocrinologist, and the endocrinologist was absolutely stoked that this guy had made all these health improvements but still recommended he resume his old diet because his current diet was not healthy. You know, if that isn't cognitive dissonance, I don't know what is. And that is not uncommon in the medical profession. One of the biggest criticisms I've seen, and I've been a proponent of the low-carb ketogenic diet for the last five, six years, and I'll get into – I probably should tell that story to the people listening, and I will get into that. But the biggest criticism I hear about that is it's not sustainable. Now, that, from my point of view of someone who's done it for a long period of time, is absolute bullshit. It is a deliberate – it, it sounds like a deliberate lie or a, del- a deliberate way for people to go, no, no, you can't do that because you won't be able to keep it going. You can do it for as long as you want. You can keep going t- until the end of time. It comes down to your personal ability and your your mental toughness to keep it going. I absolutely agree. If you want to look at diets with very, very poor compliance, it's the restricted diets that force you to go hungry, restrict your portions. They're the ones that really people can't adhere to. The biggest reason people fail to follow a diet is because they're hungry, full Mm. stop. Now, if you're put on a diet that says you can eat as much as you want, where's the hunger? Now, sure, you will still have food cravings because a lot of people are addicted to sugar and sweets and things like that, and they have trouble distinguishing between what is a genuine sense of hunger and just when some neurons within their brain need a little bit of excitement. Mm. But the fact is the ketogenic diet is absolutely sustainable, and I've got dozens and dozens of patients who have been on it for five years longer, even people, you know, 10 years have been on 
low carbohydrate and ketogenic style diets. So if I can, I'll just go through what brought me to begin a ketogenic diet and a low carb uh, lifestyle, if you will, and how I found out about you. I found out about you through Michaela Peterson. Uh, She put me on to you and I started following you on Twitter and looking at the really interesting things that you were saying in regards to things like a low carb diet. But for me, I started having these uh, an issue with epilepsy, if you will. Now, the problem I have is it's it's actually called um, paras- paratismal dyskinesia. Uh, I'm sure that means something to you, even to me, who has it means absolutely nothing. But I say epilepsy because my urologist said it's similar. Just say that it's much easier. Um, so basically, what I read was it can help. A low carb or ketogenic diet can help with problems like epilepsy. They give it to kids, or they 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 uh, prescribe it to kids. The diet if they are not responding to medication. Uh, so I started to do that. And I cut out carbs. I cut out sugar, and I ate a high fat, low carb diet. I did not have an issue with this uh, the turn that I was having, and this is what the doctors were calling it a turn. So basically, my head and my eyes turn. Uh, to the left side of my body, I go blind in one eye and it lasts like that. I remain um, uh, conscious throughout the entire thing and it lasts like that for about 15 seconds, absolute max. So I was having one of these every couple of months, let's say, particularly when I was playing uh, football because one of the triggers was a, a collision or a quick movement of the eyes or something like that that would trigger it. So I jumped on the keto diet and they stopped. And as a byproduct, I was I was about 134 kilos. And as a byproduct, I lost an enormous amount of weight. I got down to about 94, 95 kilos. And so I'm six foot eight. So obviously that's quite a low number. Um, and I was feeling great. All of a sudden I was running these mad distances. I was beating people at training, all those type of things. Things I was never able to do. And everyone said to me, that's not healthy. You're eating too much meat, too much saturated fat, all of those types of things. And I'm sure that that's the, the feedback that you get anytime you talk about these, these, these diets or these lifestyle changes. For me, it was something that I did research about. I listened to people uh, on the subject and realized that, okay, maybe saturated fat isn't the devil that we're all terrified of. Okay, yes, eggs have cholesterol in them, but is that dietary cholesterol going to translate to bad cholesterol in uh, in the bloodstream? There was an enormous amount of pushback from people who I spoke to. And I wondered, maybe today we could talk about what the ketogenic diet is, how it can help people, or a low-carb variant, perhaps. I'm not sure what you, what you prefer or what you prescribe. Um, and just give people a, an understanding of what that entire world is. Sure. Well, there's also two interesting points that you talked about there, and that's people's fear of saturated fat and meat. So I think saturated fat is the elephant in the room. So that's probably the first one that we should deal with. But in essence, a ketogenic diet is a diet where you reduce the carbohydrate intake sufficiently so that your body burns fat and turns that fat into something called ketones. Basically, a ketogenic diet is a description of your body burning fat, making something called ketones, and then using those ketones for fuel. 
And with reference to what you had uh, diagnosed as paroxysmal dyskinesia, which is uh, basically in medicine, by the way, we like to uh, confuse people by putting really complex words onto simple descriptions. Paroxysmal just means something that occurs suddenly and dyskinesia basically translates into, say, a poor movement. So when they said paroxysmal dyskinesia, they're really saying, oh, you just had these movements that occur suddenly. That's literally all they said back to you. But anyway, yeah, right. that's that's helpful. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know that. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> and that's, that's that's medicine in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, let, let's confuse things. Let's confuse people. Let's even confuse the actual doctors so they don't know what's right and what's wrong. Now, the beautiful thing about ketones is that the body loves it for energy, especially the brain. And it's long been known that a brain that's burning ketones operates absolutely fabulously. There's been this myth that's been propagated for, I don't know how long, over 100 years, and it's been dispelled way back in the 1960s, that you must have carbohydrates for the brain to function. Well, that's complete and utter bunkum. It's absolutely not true at all. You can literally ingest zero carbohydrates and be in fantastic, robust health. And there are some cells in the body, like the red blood cells or some of the cells in the eye, that do need glucose, which is a carbohydrate. And you know what? If your body needs that glucose, it will make that glucose. The body has a process called gluconeogenesis, which means making glucose, and that will work if your carbohydrate intake is low enough that it needs to. Mm. So basically a, a ketogenic diet is just a very low carbohydrate diet. Now, if we take carbohydrates out of the diet, then that means that the two other macronutrients need to be increased. So that's higher in protein and higher in fat. And the fat is the thing that everybody gets worked up on because once upon a time, we came up with a little fairy tale. Some bloke, uh, Nikolai Anakov, he was a Russian scientist, he decided to force feed rabbits, you know, these little, you know, fluffy things that eat grass. He force fed rabbits pure cholesterol. And he found that they developed problems with the heart. So he developed this theory that uh, cholesterol caused heart disease. And then this other guy, uh, he, Ansel Keys, he came up with a theory, well, eating saturated fat increases the cholesterol in your blood. Therefore, that too must cause heart disease. This was based on an experiment where they fed rabbits cholesterol. You can't make this stuff up. And there's a long line of dominoes that continues from there. But basically that meant that we have our current dietary guidelines that has us completely and utterly fearful of saturated fat. The simple fact is, though, that saturated fat has never been proven to be unhealthy. And in actual fact, there's been several studies, good quality studies that have proved its safety that have actually been covered up. So I'll tell you about three of them. So we'll start with one called the Sydney Diet and Heart Study because Sydney, that's where I live. This is where I practice. So this was done in the late 60s and early 70s. And they took men who had had heart attacks and they took the saturated fat out of their diet, out of some of them diet. So it's a randomised trial. So basically what that means is they, they give some of them the intervention and some of them they leave as a control, and that way they can compare the difference between the two groups. This is how real science is done. So in the control group, they said, keep eating as you will. In the intervention group, they said, take out that saturated fat 
and have this vegetable oil. And what they found was that the men who reduced their saturated fat and ingested more vegetable oil, this so-called healthy polyunsaturated fat, their mortality increased 62%. Think about that. Vegetable oil, you die more. But then why haven't you heard about it? Because the researchers, they never published the results. It was quite literally this, remember, this finished, I think it was in 1973, this study finished. The results weren't published until 2013. And that was after somebody, an investigator, he had heard about this study and wondered where this data was. And he tracked down one of the original investigators or one of their children if they'd passed away. And he literally uncovered the data still on punch cards sitting oh. in somebody's basement. And he went to great lengths to decode it and they cross-referenced the data, et cetera, et cetera, and they, they met modern standards. And then they said, well, this is a huge finding. So it ended up being published in British Medical Journal, one of the world's most prestigious journals in 2013. Basically, you know, if this had been published back then, we'd never have gotten on the bandwagon of this whole food pyramid nonsense. And about the same time, there was another study called the Minnesota Coronary Survey, and this was over a double-blinded randomised controlled trial of over 9,000 subjects. And that too was hidden. The full results weren't published until they were uncovered again. You can't make this up in another basement. And it was published in British Medical Journal in 2016. The results, reducing saturated fat in the diet, increased mortality. That is, if you eat less saturated fat, you are more likely to die. So what, what was happening in the late 60s, early 70s that would account for this being... Um, hidden. I know that this is the sort of time where the the sugar industry. Everyone talks about the sugar industry was hiding mm. things. Is this the same sort of like cabal, if you will, that was happening in Australia as it was in America? No. Well, the, so the Minnesota Coronary Survey was in the US. Um, so this was worldwide. Basically, yeah. it was at the behest of one guy called Ansel Keys, who had truly brought into this lipid heart hypothesis that cholesterol and saturated fat would kill you. And they truly believed that. So cognitive dissonance came to the fore and they were prepared to ignore whatever evidence didn't fit their narrative. It's basically the corruption of the scientific process. But it wasn't limited to just back then. So we come back to, you know, the 21st century in 2006. Have you ever heard of the Women's Health Initiative study? The world's most expensive study, 700 million US dollars. Wow. Okay. No, I have not. Went for eight years, published in 2006. So they took about 48,000 females. They reduced the saturated fat in their diet um, and followed them and saw what happened. And when it was published, they said, well, you know, we didn't find any benefit. Uh, probably we didn't reduce the saturated fat enough to get benefit, we need to reduce saturated fat more. So the results of this study were promoted as encouraging or needing a larger reduction in saturated fat. But here's where the academic fraud, and I don't use that term lightly because it appeared there's never been a good explanation. In the results table, there was no results in the conclusion, so on and so forth, no significant results. But buried on page 661 of this study, there was a single sentence that was quite obscure that basically implied that the females who went on the low-fat diet, the reduced-fat diet, were 26% more likely to have cardiovascular complications. Now, this is absolutely huge. 
And this was basically never acknowledged and hidden. And recently, just late last year, there was a follow-up paper that was published where they again tried to hide their results. And this was basically an expose by my friend, Professor Timothy Noakes from South Africa. And he actually has uncovered data that showed that at after a further five years follow-up in the Women's Health Initiative, those females on the reduced fat diets, well, their problem or their risk of developing coronary heart disease complications after a further five years had increased to somewhere between 47 and 61%. So the longer you're on the reduced fat diet, the worse the complications. And most people, doctors included, especially doctors, have absolutely no idea that this evidence has been hidden from view. And there is literally zero good evidence that we should avoid saturated fat at all. So this this diet that was a part of these studies, would it be fair to say that this is the diet that's almost prescribed or normalised in society right now, cutting out saturated fat entirely, or is this much more drastic? No, well, they, they absolutely weren't much more drastic at all. So okay. essentially, they, they didn't completely eliminate it. They reduced it in favour of vegetable oils, which I imagine you've heard that message before. You've been told, don't have butter, have margarine. I mean, we all know now how much nonsense that is. Was there, was there a point, if I can just interrupt, was there a point where I heard this on a podcast that margarine would be li- li- um, like taken off the shelves at some point? Like people were saying that this is... I heard it somewhere, I might just be rubbish, but that it is such a poorly designed uh, nutrition or a, a food that it will not be on the shelves in 10 years. We can only dream. I mean, basically margarine is made of vegetable oil and seed oil. So if you're yeah. having margarine, you're having seed oil. It's no different to rice bran oil, no different to canola oil, all these other things. Now, margarine used to have a bit, bit of a bad rap uh, back in the 70s, uh, 60s, they used to have something, a process called hydrogenation, which led to something called trans fats. And that turned the margarine from the soft margarine that we know nowadays into a hard margarine. Uh, and there has been some concerns raised about trans fats. So certainly margarine now is different to what it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago in some cases, but still it's toxic. Yeah. Toxic as in seed oils, uh, vegetable oils, inflammation-wise? Is that sort of the core thing we're talking about here? Well, what it is, it's it's a chemical nature of the actual oil. So the thing that makes the oil liquid is something called a double bond, and that double bond is very prone to a chemical reaction called oxidation. And that oxidation damage to the oil is something that you can ingest and will also damage you. So we've actually shown quite nicely that consumption of oxidised oils can damage the liver. And that's probably what kickstarts the whole process of metabolic ill health, diabetes, and so on and so forth. But basically, it's a, it's a chemical uh, necessity of the oil having double bonds. Every polyunsaturated oil has to end up being oxidized. There's no way we can stop this process. Fish oils included. So fish oils, people don't realize that fish oil is also a polyunsaturated oil. And when they've done studies, independent scientists have gone around and bought the uh, fish oil from the chemist. And they did this study in uh, Sydney a few years ago. And they showed that 
every single fish oil bought had detectable oxidation. And even when they used an industry standard, and when you hear industry standard, understand industry has no interest in setting a threshold for anything that's going to be hard or inconvenient for them to achieve. So even with a very lax industry standard, there was a huge number of these fish oils that failed that. Um, and this was based in Sydney. And this has been now uh, repeated. I saw a study recently where they'd repeated a similar study in the United States. So basically any polyunsaturated oil should not be consumed in the oil state. Now that doesn't mean that polyunsaturated fats are unhealthy because they can be very healthy. And in actual fact, they're essential. So you would have heard of omega-3 and omega-6 fats, but they're healthy when they come from fresh food. So understand that if they're sitting in a bottle, within a few days, they start to oxidize. But if they're in a piece of fish or a piece of beef or something like that, you're not going to wait for that to go rancid before you eat it, are you? So if if you're not eating rancid meat, rancid fish, in all probability, you're not consuming oxidized oil. So that's the healthiest way to get your polyunsaturated oils. Whatever you do, don't get them from a bottle. I I heard uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick talk about this, about the amount of time that let's say, a fish oil supplement uh, spends on the dock or it spends going rancid and oxidising prior to it being treated and going into a pill and then just sitting on the shelves. Like it just goes through this enormous oxidisation process and, yeah, it is. you would be much healthier not consuming it than consuming it. And, but don't be fooled by this time thing because in a way that's irrelevant because it oxidizes within days. Right, okay. Even if, even if it went straight from the fishmongers to the factory to, to the shelf to your fridge, it's still oxidized by the time it gets to you. Right. What, what about um, we talk about oils, vegetable oils. Olive oil is a – is seen as a very healthy oil. People take olive oil shots. I mean, they talk about the Italians, they put olive oil on everything and they've got no heart disease in Italy. What, where did, where does that come from? How do people can treat that? How, how can you, how should you treat that information rather? And where, where does this, where does this all stem from? Very skeptically. The whole, there's a whole mythology around the Mediterranean diet, which is where olive oil gets its allure. And the simple fact is when they did the original studies on olive oil, the Mediterranean diet, they were hopelessly and fundamentally flawed. So, for instance, one of the biggest sections of of the studies they did originally was performed during Lent when their diets were incredibly different. They weren't having the animal products and stuff like that that they used to. So it's just, uh, you know, the whole Mediterranean stuff is rubbish and there is no compelling evidence, and I'll repeat that, there is no compelling evidence that olive oil is in any way superior to saturated fat. Now, the way to think about it is I've just explained to you that the thing that makes vegetable oil bad is it's polyunsaturated, which means it's got multiple double bonds that are prone to chemical reactivity. Olive oil is 70% oleic acid, which is a monounsaturated, mono meaning one. So it's got a single double bond prone to reaction. Saturated fats don't have any. 
So basically olive oil is a halfway house. So if you study it and compare it to vegetable oils, yes, it will look good because it's only got a single reactive reaction prone bond rather than multiple, but it's still got nothing on saturated fats. So this is, this is basically a, uh, a scale from the poorest oil to consume to, to the best, and you see the best being saturated fat. And I imagine that a lot of people would look at that with an enormous scepticism, probably number one being vegan folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I had on the podcast uh, a few months ago a dude by the name of Vegan Gaines. He's a very prolific, uh, insane human being. And I brought up with him – the idea of saturated fat linking to heart disease. And I said, hey, mate, for every study suggesting that it is, there is a link rather, there is another study suggesting that there isn't. And his response to me was, you can't believe all the studies you read. I've got the right studies and they are in the best journals and they are the ones we need to believe. Okay, so let's talk about these studies. So, And this is where it gets fun. So first of all, if we're looking at epidemiology, Epidemiology just looks at, you know, is something associated with something else? So I think there's some very good uh, research that um, that looks at association of Nick Cage movies and the number of drownings in backyard swimming pools. And there is a very tight correlation of that. But this serves the point that epidemiology, just because two things seem to occur at the same time, doesn't mean they are in any way causally connected. Now, I don't know, maybe you don't like Nick Cage movies and it makes you want to just go and jump off a pier or something, but I think that's pretty unlikely. So basically epidemiological studies and how do you know if a newspaper or a journalist is reporting an epidemiological study? They use the word association. They say this is associated with this. They don't say caused because they can't say cause because there's no way uh, epidemiological studies cannot prove causation. So there's... Multiple ways by the research that the plant and vegetarian agenda groups will actually cite that they are fundamentally flawed. First of all, we have healthy user bias. And what does healthy user bias mean? So we've been told forever and a day that red meat is bad. So people who care about their health, so that means people who exercise, people who get enough sleep, people who don't smoke, these kind of people, they're more likely to not eat red meat because simply because they've been told it's unhealthy. That's healthy user bias. So if we then measure a population, we find that um, red meat eaters will tend to be clustered in the population who drinks too much, smokes too much, um, only gets off the couch to get a bag of potato chips. So that's healthy user bias. We also have uh, food frequency questionnaires which are used Um, to assess people's intake. So epidemiological study might be, well, we did food frequency questionnaires on 3,000 people and we found that uh, people who have more red meat are more likely to die. That's how these are often reported. So first of all, they ask people to recall exactly what they've eaten, not just over 28 days, but often over years, which is clearly most people don't even know what they've had for breakfast. And they also have uh, problems with how they categorise things. So if you had a hot dog, that's put in the red meat category. Mm -hmm. You're having a hot dog, you're probably having some fries and you're probably having a soda on the side. If you're having a pizza with a bit of ham on top, 
red meat category. So you can really see how this misclassification can basically destroy this research. Now they do they things where they try and control for what they call confounding variables, but there's no way that you can completely control for confounding variables. The only way to actually truly see whether they, you know, what diet is good. So you made the uh, comment on vegan gains that, uh, you know, he said, I've got the best research. Well, the best research is experimental research. It's where you have two groups of people who are drawn from the same population so that on average, they're going to be the same. So if there is any confounding variables, they basically get balanced out between the two groups. You give the intervention to one person, you give no intervention to the other person, and then you compare the results. Exactly what they did in the Sydney Diet Heart Study, the Minnesota Coronary Survey, the Women's Health Initiative Study. So that's reliable science. But one of the, I guess, if we're sort of going to be talking about this, let's talk about how the process of science and how communication of science can be horribly distorted. So one reason I believe that this anti-saturated fat message has become so popular is because it supports the drug company narrative. If you believe saturated fat is bad, then you also believe that cholesterol is bad or what we call cholesterol, in particular, something called LDL cholesterol. Uh, you would have heard of LDL before. Yes. So that's a pejorative term that we give to uh, a cholesterol. And I say pejorative because it makes it sound bad, but in actual fact, it is perfectly healthy. So when they've actually done studies on LDL cholesterol, they've actually they've done prospective reviews that were published in the British Medical Journal and basically they, there's no cherry picking. They took all the studies that were available and they analysed them and they had a look at what people's lifespan was versus their LDL level. So I think they had 11 studies with over 90,000 participants. This was published in the British Medical Journal and they found unequivocally that people with the highest LDL level lived the longest Wow. Uh, and so we, we call it bad LDL or bad cholesterol, but this is absolutely not based on science at all. So, there's, there's, so this is the cholesterol that people are avoiding by not eating eggs, not eating saturated fat, by taking statins. Am I right in saying that, that's, that these are all, all methods put in place to reduce the LDL cholesterol? Yeah, well, the whole thing about statins, I mean, this is another case where we've had the wool pulled over our eyes uh, scientifically. So Lipitor has made over 150 billion US dollars. This is a, and that's just one of the statins. I mean, these things make a hell of a lot of money. So in 1959, the very first cholesterol lowering drug was approved. It wasn't a statin class, but it was a different drug. It was called Treparanol. And it was introduced to the US by the same company that introduced thalidomide. Wow. Well, uh, anyway, but that's by the by. That, that <laughs> yeah, yeah might fair be enough, fair enough. Still. In 1962, it was withdrawn because of severe side effects, including heart disease. And, you know, I, I won't go through all of the side effects in laborious detail, but this should not have been a surprise. For example, in the preclinical testing where they gave it to rats for nine weeks, 43 out of the 44 rats died. And uh, in 1963, a year after it was taken off the market, the company was found guilty by a grand jury, basically for what amounted as research fraud. Mm. So 
Then here we're in a vacuum because this is the early 1960s. So remember this belief that saturated fat and high cholesterol is everybody believes it. So that's going around, but there's nothing to treat it. So in 1976, a Japanese scientist called Akira Endo, he worked for a company called Sankayo, he, uh, he discovered a statin drug. And eventually this Japanese company and Merck ended up racing to bring it to the market. And then the Japanese company Sankayo, they stopped producing it. They just stopped. And that was because about half the test dogs who were given the statin were developing cancer. So at the same time, Merck stopped producing it. Um, but there, And this is all on record. This is all in the academic literature. So, you know, you, you can look this up. So then uh, Merck, a few years later, they threw some shade at the Japanese researchers. Ah, oh, they must have been mistaken about the cancer in the dogs. So they started development again. And that was approved in 1987 as lovastatin. So... Well, am I right in saying that a statin would be a very highly prescribed drug up there with maybe antidepressants across Absolutely. the Australian people? Absolutely. But let's talk about what statins do. So then the question is, so if statins lower cholesterol and we presume that this cholesterol is bad for you, they must make you live longer. They must stop you from dying. So if I ask a patient who comes in on a statin, I'm saying, why are you taking it? And they say, well, it's going to stop me from dying. It's going to stop me from having a heart attack. And that's not completely true because it might slow you dying, but it won't stop you dying. The smarter question to ask is how much longer will it make you live by? So in 2015, British Medical Journal published a review where they took all the subjects who had been uh, all the studies that had actually looked at statins in a way that they could actually measure the, the mortality outcomes. And they found that you got between an extra three or four days of life. Three or four days. Really? This is, this is, and this is, again, published in British Medical Journal. So you can't make this stuff up. I encourage anybody to look it up. Now there was a, there is an issue with looking it up though, because I, I remember hearing about how many people you have to treat with statins for one person to live longer. And I can't remember the number, but I was looking this up the other day mm-hmm. and it did not appear in the Google search result history. I went to DuckDuckGo, it came up as the first thing. So to, for even to Google it, it is a tough thing to find a resource on it. Well, I can explain. Because a lot of the statin data, even to independent doctors and researchers, the statin data is kept under lock and key. Commercial incompetence, they call it. So even to this day, we can't, as, a, if I, as independent doctors and researchers, review the data on statins, that, which is just crazy because yeah. I, I don't know how they get away with it, but they do get away with it and they have gotten away with it. Are there other so drugs that you can't review the, the, the research on? Are there other drugs? Well, funnily enough, there was a, I had a patient last year. His uh, cardiologist was really pushing him to take this, uh, this blood thinner type drug called ticagrelor. Yeah. And he asked my opinion. And I said, bugger if I'm no, let, let me look at the research. So what I came across was that a media organisation called BuzzFeed 
had actually made a submission to the FDA in America with a freedom of information request to actually access all of the underlying data in which this was approved. And they basically found that the company that produced this expensive drug, new and expensive, basically falsified the data. So we know Tamiflu. Have you heard of Tamiflu? No. Okay. So remember the swine flu epidemic back in 2009? Mm-hmm. So everybody was worried. So this uh, Roche, this pharmaceutical company, developed this antiviral drug. And uh, I can't really talk too much, but anyway, it's an antiviral drug. Um, So and the drug companies published some data and it was very promising. So governments around the world literally spent billions of dollars in uh, stocking up on this drug. And as it turned out, the drug companies had hidden their data that showed that it didn't really work. And the interesting thing was, I mean, this, the UK government had an inquiry and they actually basically said, well, this is, uh, you know, it's actually quite a shame that drug companies are allowed to hide and deceive and not publish their unfavourable results, um, but they didn't break any laws in doing so. And this is the exact same situation we're in today. Drug companies are under no obligation at all um, to publish results that they don't want to publish, or even if they are under obligation, they find that's ways to fight it and not to do it. That's terrifying. That is terrifying, but also we must remember to trust the science. But that is terrifying. Trust the science. Well, trust me. Hey, so trust the science, Paul. Come on, mate. In 2000, <laughs> it's a swine flu epidemic. Governments around the world spent billions of dollars on drugs that didn't really work the way the drug companies said they worked. And this is in the public domain. And that took a concerted effort um, to actually uncover the truth. And so, And we're kidding ourselves if we think that, drug companies have any interest in the public more so than their shareholders. Absolutely. So, so this, um, yeah, statins, they're basically, you know, the best data we have shows that they might increase your lifespan three to four days. A meta-analysis published uh, just last year, meta-analysis, by the way, just means it takes all the available research that meets a certain standard and summarizes it. And it's really important that it actually has a um, what we call a methodological standard in there because um, garbage in, garbage out. So, But this took some high-quality papers and it concluded that for people between the ages of 50 and 75, which is the ages where most people take statins, that there was no mortality benefit found. So basically, if you're between 50 and 75, this paper concluded that you were wasting your time taking a statin if you were doing it for the purpose of living longer. I, I imagine that the people listening to this podcast are, you know, close to their 20s to 30s. There's, there's actually quite a lot of older people too who, uh, who may be on statins, but also more importantly, the people who are listening to this who are in their 20s, 30s and even younger and 40s, they might have a parent who's on statins. They may be headed towards statins. Maybe their doctor has recommended statins. I know that my doctor, when I was in high school, recommended that I might have to look at something like that. Um, now, well, now you know the data on LDL. So ask your doctor this uh, British Medical Journal article, it's, you know, this prospective data on LDL saying, well, why would I want to lower my LDL if on average it's associated with longer lifespan? 
Yeah, well, exactly. And this is and this is my point. What does someone go and say to their doctor? If, if they've heard this and they've gone, oh, shit, like that's, that's a bit scary, it's unnecessary, and I imagine there are a lot of side effects to the modern-day statins as well. What do they need to have? You this can't con- even make this up, the side effects. So, I mean, the Women's Health Initiative study showed that it could increase the risk of diabetes by 71%. 71? As a, <laughs> you might be interested in this. It can also, as a young 20-year-old, it can also cause testicular shrinkage. Oh, Lower testosterone levels. Right. Associated with dementia. I mean, it's uh, blood in the urine. It, you, can't, you can't even begin to comprehend. So basically, the human body functions, our energy is produced in our mitochondria in our cells. And I don't think it's a stretch to describe statins as mitochondrial toxins. But... Uh, yeah, I, I, I really, I probably Mate. better not bang on about. No, that no, too no, much. no, no. My apologies, and and we need to remember that being a medical professional, you can't, you can't talk in in a certain way about certain things, and that's just the way that it is. Um, well, but I maybe I can't talk about some things, but I probably can talk about why I can't talk about certain things. Okay, Beautiful. so basically, it, it, it's APRA. Yep. So uh, APRA is our regulatory authority and we've been given uh, uh, strict guidance that we should not make uh, commentary uh, that goes against uh, recommendations in public health guidance or guidelines. Okay, so if, so if which you... Means if, that, sorry, go on. Unfortunately, I guess some of this commentary that I've made on saturated fats and things like that um, could probably... Uh, yeah, would probably go against some public health guidance. But fortunately, they don't seem to worry about that. But they do worry about some other things which we won't talk about. Yes, we absolutely will not talk about that. Not at all. Um, So let's talk – we've talked about saturated fats. We've talked about how a lot of these studies really don't differentiate between um, me eating a hamburger and chips – as, as that being more of a carb- carbohydrate-fueled meal rather than being a, a red meat meal. Um, and I think a lot of people don't really wrap, can't really wrap their heads around that. But, you know, if you're in a – if you're a poor, poorly – what's the word I'm looking for here? If your health is poorly, you, if you are eating red meat, you're not eating it by itself. You're eating it covered in sauce. You're eating it with chips. If you're having a burger, you're having pizza, all of these things are all highly processed, highly um, covered in carbs, if you will, all those type of things. That's probably where all the data is skewed where it comes to how people consume their saturated fat. Where does this love, where does this obsession with veganism come from other than um, I get it from the point of view of saving animals. That's beautiful, right? It's, mm. a, go- it's a gorgeous thing. Um, is, okay, here's the question. Is meat healthy? Absolutely. So, I mean, you have to understand. So I guess there's two things there. So you said, where does this drive? Where does the plant-based agenda arise from? And a lot of people will be quite surprised to find that there's actually a religious undercurrent to this uh, by way of the Seventh-day Adventist church. So Sanitarium, the cereal company, is wholly owned by the Seventh-day Adventist church. And they're very profitable, uh, helped by the fact that they pay absolutely no taxes. It's a religious organisation. Now, if we go way back, uh, there was something called the McGovern Committee back in the, the US where they actually were rewriting the nutritional guidelines. And one of the key people in writing 
those guidelines was actually a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, the United States uh, Dietitians Association um, had a large number of Seventh-day Adventists as founding members. And basically, um, the Seventh-day Adventist, uh, as a belief system, believes that we should not consume red meat, that it's, it stimulates carnal desires, that it's impure. So cornflakes, for instance, the inventor of cornflakes, uh, Dr. John Kellogg's, he was a Seventh-day Adventist and he's, he wrote extensively on uh, carnal's desires and sins and things that he called evils, uh, the most prominent of these being masturbation. And as a treatment for masturbation, he recommended a diet that's high in grains and vegetables and fruits with no meat at all. And in actual fact, the cornflakes is, uh, you know, fills this void quite nicely. Um, there's no meat at all. And this is something that apparently was well known uh, even back then, uh, that by avoiding meat, you could actually uh, reduce your libido. So a lot of people don't realise that this religious undercurrent and there's a, a bunch of other um, forces. So the, the global warming movement and environmental movement, I believe, has really gotten on the wrong horse with this one um, in embracing plant-based diets and vegan diets because it just doesn't make any sense at all. And the World Health Organisation has been putting out a lot of absolute rubbish when it comes to uh, uh, making meat look worse than it actually is. So you might remember in 2015, the World Health Organisation put out a report that was basically promoted as saying meat is as bad as smoking, it causes cancer. Do you remember that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So first of all, they, uh, they looked at epidemiological research, which, as you know, epidemiological research is rubbish. So there's over 800 epidemiological studies looking at red meat and the connection between cancer. So this paper included 29 of them, just 29 of the more than 800 studies. And of this 29 studies they included, only 14 of them actually showed a link between red meat and cancer. So hardly underwhelming. So 14 studies out of more than 800. So what, so, what was this link? Well, basically it's an association. They said people who have more red meat seem to have more cancer. Now that might be they have more red meat with their hot dog and their soda and their fries and healthy user bias. So these people who don't exercise and smoke and drink too much um, have more cancer. But, you know, irrespective, we know you can't prove causality with epidemiology. So let's just ignore this anyway because it's completely underwhelming. So then they had six experimental studies on mice. Now, experimental designs are good. I've said previously that this is how you prove causality. This is how you prove something. But, you know, I don't squeak. I'm not a mouse. But anyway, these mice studies, and you can't even make this up, out of these six studies, three of these mice studies, as well as feeding the mice meat, injected them with cancer-causing chemicals. Right. You, um, you can't even make this up. This is a 2015 World Health Organization report that said red meat is as bad as cancer. And the other three studies on mice all had severe methodological limitations, things like we'll give you red meat and we'll give you sugar at the same time. And we know that sugar increases your risk of cancer. So, with, with, Sorry, with the, with the cancer-causing agent that was injected, was this done on the control group as well? No. 
what the what the fuck does that mean? That's ridiculous. <laughs> so, well, even even if it was, it's you're yeah, even, yeah. somebody with a cancer causing chemical. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So, and and if we do want to go back to epidemiological research, um, if you if you got to trust it, so there's this uh, big study called the Epic Oxford Unit uh, Oxford study um, run out of Oxford University in uh, the UK, and that found that non-meat eaters were 49% more likely to suffer bowel cancer than meat eaters. So that that goes against the whole idea of fibre, right, to clean out your bowel and all that. That's what we were taught in school. Like you've got to eat a lot well, of fibre. Exactly, it- just process that for a minute. People who didn't eat meat in the Epic Oxford study yep. were 49% more likely to get bowel cancer. It doesn't just go against it. I mean, it sort of yeah, spits in the face of it. the whole argument. Yeah. So, and when we're talking about sustainability and and these kind of things, um, so of uh, meat based diets. So in 1906, there was this uh, this researcher called Wilhelmer uh, Stefansson. He was a Harvard anthropologist, and he went to live with the Inuit in the Canadian Arctic, and he lived there for a year eating exactly like the native Inuit. So he basically, you know, had seal and eggs when they were available for about a month of the year, lots of caribou and basically no plants. And he was really surprised. He was in robust health. And so when he got back, everybody's like, yeah, nah, you're lying. That's not possible. So he agreed to be part of an experiment in 1926. So the experiment started. He and another guy went to a hospital in New York and they were fed an exclusive meat diet. And over the 12 months, there were genuine fears that these two guys would kill themselves, that they would die. And in the report afterwards, the commentary was along the lines of, surprisingly, both men remained in robust health. So we know that you can survive on meat, solely on meat, and do very well. And you've probably heard about the Maasai. So the the African tribe. So that's a largely carnivorous tribe. So in 1931, there was a paper that that studied the Maasai and an adjacent tribe that was predominantly vegetarian, the Akakuyu. And what they actually found, that the Maasai were five inches taller on average, 50% stronger, and they had far less bone disease, less anemia, less respiratory issues, less ulcers, less bony deformities. In general, the near-predominant carnivores were far, far healthier, taller and stronger than the vegetarians. And don't for a second think that this is an anomaly. So throughout human history, we've studied, so agriculture came on about 10 or 12,000 years ago when uh, human societies, for whatever reason, decided that they'd start farming grains. And if you have a look at the fossil record, you will actually see that humans were taller with bigger brains 10,000 years ago than they are today. Right. On average, 10,000 year years ago, the average brain size was 1,500 cubic centimetres. Today, it's 1,300 cubic centimetres. And quite literally, this is a direct effect of transitioning from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a farming-type lifestyle. And we've got lots of research on this today 
about the effects of vegetarian and vegan diets on the brain. The simple fact is the brain is two-thirds fat. Mm. It needs fat. So, and a good 20, 25% of that is what we call DHA fat, an omega-3 fat that you don't get from plant foods, you get from animal foods. There's other nutrients like zinc and iron, which are B12, which are absolutely essential for brain function. So they've done studies where they've shown that if you have iron deficiency and they give you an iron infusion, um, that your IQ improves, your performance on IQ tests improves. They they did a study at uh, Sydney University. So there's a supplement called uh, creatine. It's only from flesh. And they found that when they supplemented vegetarians with this substance, their IQ increased, but not an omnivore or somebody who's already eating creatine in their diet. So there can be absolutely no doubt that a vegetarian or vegan diet is not as healthy or nourishing for the brain. In actual fact, in Belgium, if a parent feeds their child on a vegan diet, they can go to jail. And a lot of vegans and I agree with that. Absolutely. Vegetarians <laughs> will say, well, I'm not going to offer comment. A lot of vegan <laughs> vegetarians, they will claim, but we know about these deficiencies. And so we correct for them. So first of all, there's a bunch more things that are deficient on a vegetarian diet that people aren't aware of. You just have to ask them what they're doing for choline and just watch their face glaze over. Okay. And number two, even though they do know that things are deficient, everybody knows about vitamin B12 being deficient on vegetarian diets. One study in the UK on vegetarian or vegans found that 50% of them were deficient in B12. So just knowing about the deficiencies doesn't fix the deficiencies. And the sad fact is that more than 50% of the children in the world today are iron deficient. And that's not because there's some woke individuals, you know, hippies who choose not to eat meat because they're trying to, you know, for whatever reasons. This is purely social and economic reasons. Mm. It's because they can't afford the good quality protein. Most people around the world would look at what's happening in, you know, these Western nations and think that we're absolutely crazy doing what we're doing. So, and then there's also the uh, environmental uh, impacts as well can, can i just and, jump in on on the side of um the nutritional side of a vegan diet is, is it possible to if you were an expert in nutrition to find a way to gather all of those micronutrients macronutrients into your diet on, on a, a vegan, vegan diet, diet? Yeah. no no I, I don't think so at all i think it, it would never be at the optimal level it, it simply could never be at the optimal level and I mean, the, the reason is, so there was a paper that was published in 2017 in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. And they looked at what would happen if every single American completely eschewed all animal products, if they completely removed animal foods from their diet and replaced it with plant foods. So first of all, uh, this is an aside, that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2.6%. Right, so that goes completely against the mainstream sort of so narrative. hardly going to save the planet, 2.6%. Yep. But they also found that there would be an increase in nutrient deficiency. So things like calcium, omega-3, vitamin A, vitamin B12 would all get worse. And what they basically found is that there would be an excess in energy and a deficiency in nutrients. And this is the problem faced by vegans. Mm. 
for them to try and to to get an adequate amount of nutrition and quite simply there's no there's no plant source of vitamin b12 at all it just does not exist it's impossible um, but for these other nutrients like amino acids when a lot of vegetarians will say i can get all my amino acids you can if you were to get all of your amino acids you would be in a horrible energy excess there is simply nothing like the nutrient density in plant foods as there is in animal foods, and that's a fact. So, what? okay, let's go on the other side of things. People will look at this and go, well, what about these carnivore people? Surely they're not getting the the, the right amount of nutrients, and surely their diet, they can't get uh, the macronutrients, micronutrients that, that us vegans could get. Well, we all, we've already mentioned the Maasai, we've already mentioned the Inuit, and there's multiple other historical tribes around the world. Um, notwithstanding, I've got literally dozens of patients who actually are on near-exclusive animal-based diets in robust health, and they have significantly improved their health. One of the biggest uh, mistakes that most people will cite is vitamin C. And they say, well, you, you must need to eat fruit and vegetables for vitamin C. This was why Wilhelm Stefansson, when he got back from the Canadian Arctic, um, why he was met with disbelief because vitamin C had just recently been discovered. And people thought, well, what are you going to do if you have vitamin C? Well, first of all, the vitamin C needs are significantly reduced when you're not having heaps of carbohydrates and sugar. So uh, sugar and vitamin C actually compete for absorption by the body. So if you're not competing with all that sugar, you'll have a greater fractional absorption of vitamin C. And the role of vitamin C, uh, it's actually uh, a lot of the, uh, the effects on protein and um, other molecules. So there's one called carnitine, which you need vitamin C for. You're actually ingesting a lot more of that on with meat. So you don't actually need to use vitamin C as much for that. But more interestingly, in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, scurvy was quite common and they used to cure scurvy in uh, the soldiers by giving them the raw horse meat of the horses that had been killed in battle. Right. And, and meat, it's been long known that meat can be used. So a lot of the uh, original uh, explorers, so I believe the uh, Antarctic explorers, uh, they used to eat penguins to avoid scurvy. Okay. So uh, Delic delicious, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, but, but one one of the things that people sort of don't really understand with the the carnival diet is it's not so much just the meat; it has to be a fatty meat. Because if you eat just lean protein like a rabbit, you won't be able to survive, right? Well, not just any rabbit. I think you've probably read an account of some of the uh, early explorers, and they have yeah. something called rabbit starvation. Yeah, and this is interesting because uh, th this is debated even to this day. Um, there is no doubt that if you don't eat fatty enough meat, uh, you will become ill. So fat is an essential nutrient. So, and people forget this. So we've talked about, you know, saturated fat being healthy and all that. It's not just healthy. Without it, you'll get really sick. So uh, the tradition, if we have a look at traditional cultures, so the, uh, the, uh, the Aboriginal, the Indigenous Native Australian, they used to, if they would hunt a kangaroo, if the kangaroo didn't have enough fat on it, they would leave it for the dingoes. Oh. So the prized fat, they used to cut the animals open and get the fat around the kidneys first. They, uh, cultures around the world prize fat and they just they look at us like we're crazy. 
And there's, uh, I wasn't sort of lost my plot exactly where I was going. No, mate, go point. for it. It's all good. Um, well, yeah. So the the rabbit, the rabbit starvation. Oh yeah, the rabbit starvation. So Wilhelm Stefansson. So when he got back and he did this twelve uh, month long study, there was only one period of time where he was sick with diarrhea and nausea, and that was when the people running the experiment gave him lean meat okay. for a couple of weeks and not the fatty meat. And when he went to lean meat, he felt unwell. And when they introduced the fat back into the ration, he rapidly recovered. So it does make the point that we absolutely do need fat with our meat. So people who are on carnivore diets, they will often complain of nausea and diarrhea. And I suspect that a lot of these symptoms are related to insufficient fat intake. And that's a massive hurdle for a lot of people, even if you are on a carnivore diet. Like just even for me when I was on a keto diet, still you, you, you're brought, brought up in a way where fat is the devil, you have to steer clear of it, this has got too much fat in it. You know, people, I remember when I first started a keto diet and I was having MCT oil in my coffee, people were like, what? You're having oil in your coffee? Like that's madness. I stopped doing that after a while um, only because I, I didn't feel I needed it anymore. I thought I felt I was um, so ingrained into the keto sort of lifestyle that my body was adapting and, and running quite well. I didn't feel I, I needed it. But um, people are going to have this this roadblock of this fear of consuming fat and I think it's going to take a long time and I guess it's the work that you're doing to help people overcome it, but it's going to take a long time for people to come to the their own conclusion perhaps that, you know, this isn't going to kill me just by consuming it one day or then and then developing a diet around it. It's not going to take my life from me. Well, let me ask you this. Does it make sense to blame an ancient food for modern disease? Well, no. No, Saturated fat has been with us since time began. Well, for humans anyway. I mean, if we have a look at what we ate ancestrally with the woolly mammoths and these kind of large animals, so the proportion of fat to, to protein in those animals was far greater than it is in smaller game. Would you say we eat too often then as well? Because obviously every day we're not taking down a woolly mammoth. Well, how often do you eat? I eat as much as I can. But I mean, I mean, like obviously, you know, if you're trying to build muscle and those type of things, it's it's different. But mm. would you say that most people eat too many calories or too much, too often? No, most people eat the wrong thing because if you put the right food into your body, your appetite will regulate itself. So, you know, I'm a little bit of a hedonist, and I'm never going to go hungry. Mm. So. I'll eat whenever I'm hungry. And that will usually mean that I, you know, if I'm at work, I'll eat twice a day. Um, at home, I'll, on weekends, I'll probably eat three times a day. But I, you know, I won't, and sometimes I'll just eat out of habit or just to be social, just to spend time with other people. Um, but do we eat too much? I certainly don't think I eat too much. And the reason is my appetite is controlled by my hormone levels because I'm not putting crap stuff into my body that will distort those levels. Well, in answer to your question, actually, when I'm on a keto diet, I eat uh, probably my first meal at three or four o'clock in the afternoon, some protein, some fat, that's about it, and then I'll have dinner and that usually does me. So I'm usually eating one, one and a half meals a day and that's I'm just not hungry at any point. Mm-hmm. The, the reason that I stopped my keto diet was because I found I wasn't putting on, uh, I was losing too much weight. I wasn't putting on muscle when I was training. And that could probably be 
you know, navigated around by eating more calories, I would assume. Uh, yeah, or we more wouldn't want to fade away to normal. No, I know, right? Jesus. Um, but also being on the road all the time, it is very difficult of a diet to stick with. And I know uh, Jordan Peterson and Michaela Peterson, they travel a lot. To stick with a carnivore diet, that must be – and I'm not sure about your uh, your diet or anything like that, but to travel a lot to stick to these diets, it is very, very difficult. But if you're at home all the time, this is a diet that anyone can do. Well, it's actually not that difficult if you're on a ketogenic diet. So. The best advice is to eat twice a day, morning and afternoon. And that way, if you're happy to skip lunch, then it means that you, you've always got, uh, you've got food around. Now, when you're traveling, I've just got back from a bit of a road trip and it does take a bit more effort, but it's absolutely doable. Mm. Now, well, yeah, I do have to uh, say I, I had the pleasure of sharing a meal with Michaela uh, a couple of years back over in Boulder, I believe, in Colorado. And uh, that was actually at a steakhouse, and they actually uh, naturally, yep. Yeah, that was that was very. Actually, my first. Uh, I had some raw brain there, actually. Really, just like muscles. Yeah, terrifying. I don't like muscles, so I'm a bit off the old <laughs> the old brain side of thing. Have you seen the Liver King? No. Oh, mate, I don't know if you've got TikTok or, or what you get up to, but the Liver King, you need to watch this gentleman. He is an absolute ginormous man. He may or may not be on steroids, but he eats a lot of liver is his number one go-to. Loves, and I understand that, you know, organ meats were massively consumed back in the day and even up into the early 1900s, and now we just don't consume any um, organ meat at all. But he loves to eat testicles, like just mad for testicles. Testicles. I don't know where he's getting all of the testicles. Just loves raw testicles. He eats a lot of uh, a lot of brains, a lot of um, what else? He, just any part of the animal. He's just consuming this. He doesn't eat for taste. He just smashes whatever he can. And he's a giant man. I really, really recommend you check him out. He's a good laugh. But um, as far as the organ side of things, is that something people should be supplementing with as well? Look, I, I don't tend to see a lot of people needing to be that. So the carnivorous patients I have don't appear to be nutrient deficient, whether or not they're doing the so-called nose to tail. Mm. And there is some fear about liver causing vitamin A toxicity. So okay. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, Pete Evans uh, put out a cookbook for children, which he recommended a liver broth or something like that, and he was roasted over the coals for that. The ironic thing is that it Poor probably Pete. wasn't too bad because vitamin A toxicity happens in liver when you're consuming liver from carnivals. So if you were to eat wolf's wolf liver or polar bear liver, and I think there have been case studies where people have had vitamin A toxicity from polar bear livers. So what actually happens is through the food chain, so the, the polar bear will accumulate the vitamin A from whatever other animals they're eating in their liver. So they may a polar bear may have multiple times the vitamin A in their liver as what a penguin may have, which will have you know, more vitamin A than the fish they're eating, which will have more vitamin A than whatever they're eating. So you can see it basically gets concentrated up through the food chain. Um, but if you're eating herbivore liver, ruminant liver, so a beef liver or a sheep liver or something like that, then the vitamin A levels in those livers are many times less than what you'll have in carnivores. So that's something that it's an interesting myth to, it's just interesting to pay attention to how it came about. I guess we have 
you know, exorbitant amounts of access to to meat, to healthy meat. And if you would look at a, a wolf population or a lion population, which I, I, I think they reserve the liver for the leader of the pack or the, or, the, or is it the weakest uh, of them, or, of the wolves or the lions or whatever it happens. I can't see them being that egalitarian. Well, apparently this is the thing. Like if you are the leader of the wolf pack, they will leave the liver for you. Otherwise, you know, you're going to come in and crack the shits basically. But that's that's for the leader of the tribe or the alpha wolf or whatever you want to call them. But we, we with an abundance of, of meat, maybe we don't need to rely on such a nutrient-dense uh, part of the animal to get the same amount of, of benefit. If someone wanted to go onto a carnivore diet, or a ketogenic diet. Is there anyone that shouldn't go anywhere near that? Look, I'm probably not going to give any sure. particular questions that could be construed as medical advice. Okay. So uh, not that I – the simple fact is, well, let's say uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody. Okay, okay. And what, what would be a way to sort of ease your way into that type of diet? Well, I mean, most people will tend to do a bit of a stage thing. They'll start with a low-carb diet and then uh, when the carbohydrates get strict enough or the restriction of carbohydrates is strict enough, that will transition into a ketogenic diet where your body's burning fat. Um, so, And then they, there may or may not be paleo elements along the way. And then from a ketogenic diet, they may just step into something called a ketovore diet. Um, which is basically a, a ketogenic diet that's uh, mainly animal food. So that, when I speak to my patients, that tends to be the pathway which they've explored. Of course, a lot of people just jump in the deep end. Mm. Um, you know, they watch videos from uh, Michaela Peterson or Jordan Peterson or Sean Baker or Amber O'Hearn or any one of these uh, these prominent um, carnivores, and they say, "Well, it makes sense. I've got chronic health issues. I'll, you know." I'll give it a crack. Mm. And they just jump in with both feet. I think Joe Rogan uh, did it for a while while ago and he lost a bunch of weight and he said he felt great. I think he also used the term uh, disaster pants initially when yes. he started it, um, which in my mind just thinks wonders whether he is having fatty enough meat. I, yeah. I And I had it. I, I had the diet uh, or was, was eating the diet for about two weeks and I said to you the other day um, on the phone, um, that the thought of steak after a couple of weeks was just disastrous. Like I couldn't think of anything worse after that time. And that was hard for me because I love eating eating meat and to think about maybe mixing it up with a bit of chicken and that type of stuff maybe would have been the go if I, if I was to do it again. One of the things that stops people getting onto even a keto diet is they go online and they research and they look at the keto flu. They hear about the keto flu. Now I say to people – Relax. It's not a. It's not a serious thing you need to worry about. If you can, if you know, obviously, when you go into a keto diet and you stop running on on, on glycogen, you start to. Well, I'll get you to explain it because I'm going to make an absolute dick of myself. But you release a lot of the salt that you have in your body, a lot of the electrolytes in your body, the magnesium, the potassium, these type of things, and your body starts to feel a bit sluggish. Would that be a fair thing to say about the keto flu? So yeah, it, it's heavily to do with electrolytes, and it's also to do with energy supply. So basically, your body's used to working on glucose. So just for one of an explanation, so when we talk about carbohydrates, carbohydrates are quite literally made of glucose molecules all holding hands joined together. So any carbohydrate that you eat will end up being glucose in your blood 
And that will then stimulate your body to release something called insulin. And insulin does a very good job of telling your body to hold on to sodium, otherwise commonly known as table salt. Now, the problem is that if you suddenly stop eating carbohydrates, then the amount of insulin that your pancreas is releasing reduces. Mm. So then this stimulus for your body to hold on to sodium also reduces. So that means that you, you might end up being deficient for a period of time. So one thing that often makes a big difference to the keto flu, and we used to call this Atkins flu back in the 70s as well, um, is to deliberately supplement with electrolytes, and that includes sodium, potassium, and magnesium. Although we do urge caution with potassium because too much of that can cause irregular rhythms within the heart. Um, but certainly, you know, adding table salt back, especially in the early stages of a low-carb or ketogenic diet, is beneficial for reducing the symptoms of the keto flu. And the other element of it is understanding that your body's used to burning sugar carbohydrates, glucose for energy, and it's not that efficient at burning fat. And it takes a period of time to upregulate the cellular machinery to burn that. So if you were to start doing a, a start a fast or something like that, and you weren't fat adapted, you'd just get hangry. Your brain wouldn't be running on any energy at all. So some people might find it a little bit easier to do a stepped reduction in the carbohydrates to uh, get into it. Other people just say, uh, hang it, I'll just jump in and I'll bite the bullet. It's a bit like smoking cessation and we'll give it a go. Usually within two weeks, most people are back to where they were. In terms of elite athletic performance, it probably takes about four to six months to get optimal results. Uh, but most athletes, even at the elite level, will be pretty much where they were within one month. I found that... Um, and, and, and on that, on the topic of salt, probably the biggest barrier for people going into a keto diet would be fat and then, you know, consuming more fat. That's, that's scaring people already. But then all of a sudden, hang on, you want me to salt things? Mm. Salt's, salt's te terrible for you. So fortunately, this is one of those things where I can actually give advice to add salt and not um, be breaching any public health advice. So the Australian Dietary Guidelines, I think it was 2017, they actually removed an upper limit of recommended salt intake for individuals. Wow. Um, and the interesting thing here, just to give people a little bit of insight into some of the machinations that happens behind the scenes, is that the dietary guidelines have two recommended levels, one for an individual and one for a population on average. So one of the guidelines says for any individual, you should have X amount of salt. And then says, on average, the Australian population should be having Y amount of salt. Now, why have the different recommendations? It's beyond me. I don't understand it at all. But one of the recommendations says you there's no upper limit to salt intake as an individual, but population-wide, we still want the Australian population to reduce their salt. Now, I can only imagine that there's two groups behind the scenes arguing over what the level of salt intake should have been when they formulated formulated that iteration of the dietary guidelines and the compromise between them was that one of them got to make the individual recommendation and one of them made the population-wide recommendation. I mean, the, see, even if you come to the table, excuse no pun intended, with the science on these things, people are still terrified. They go, yeah, but, you know, let's just be careful. You probably shouldn't put that much salt on there. I mean, I don't know how you break the trend. 
Like, well, you- the infuriating thing for me is the term everything in moderation. It's like somehow that coming to a happy medium makes everything better. Yeah. And it's like there's absolutely no science to that. And a lot of our guidelines are formed on consensus-based opinions. And a consensus-based opinion basically means it dilutes down whatever science there is to come to this wishy-washy middle ground. And in no way is consensus-based opinion going to be cutting-edge or best-level science. I found I found that the only place in my life that I didn't benefit from with a keto diet is high intensity explosive car oh, not cardio but ex- explosive movements so like jiu-jitsu hard mm. movements within that i felt sluggish i felt slow i felt great running long distances the real sprinting powerful movements bench press these type of things i felt like that um negatively affected me whilst i was on a low carb diet so there's a couple of reasons why that can be the case but the most common reason for suboptimal performance on keto diets is insufficient electrolyte intake. So Stephen Finney, so he's actually from the US, he, back in the 1980s, he's been researching this for a long time. He did some fabulous research, uh, which basically found that people who have been on a ketogenic or low carbohydrate diet, unless they deliberately supplemented with salt more than to taste, their physical performance suffered. And this is actually not just a a problem that's found in a lot of research that's been done on ketogenic diets with regards to athletes. So there was a a quite a prominent one called the Supernova study. And basically this was done at the Australian Institute of Sport. They had some world standard race walkers. They put them on ketogenic diets and they made a couple of uh, significant errors that meant that you we can't trust their results. First of all, they didn't give them enough uh, adaption time. So I said earlier it could take at least a month and probably closer to four to six months for athletes to reach their peak. Well, they, they didn't give them long enough to keto adapt. And then they actually had diets that were deficient in electrolytes, and that included both sodium and potassium. So if you do try it again, maybe have a look at your electrolyte supplementation. Because when we talk about the supplementation, I know going through Reddit and these type of places, people genuinely tell you to put, you know, three, four, five grams of salt in a drink and drink it. Mm-hmm. And that sounds terrifying <laughs> because that's, that's quite a bit. You know, that's a, maybe a teaspoon, maybe more. So when I was a junior doctor, so I was in the hospitals and, we give people can't drink for whatever reason. So we give them IV bags and that's what we call salty water, sodium chloride. And then we're like, Oh, you need a bit of magnesium. You need a bit of potassium. And we sort of want to add some other things to that. And do we dilute it down with a bit of, you know, less sodium or we we have to try and calculate how many, uh, what electrolytes they were getting. And I used to spend a lot of time um, looking at each patient and trying to calculate exactly how much electrolyte to give them. And one of the wiser doctors tapped me on the shoulder one day and he goes, you know what, Paul, even the dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest intern. And he just walked away. And what that means is the kidney is the organ that regulates the electrolyte balance in the body. And what he was basically meaning was that it didn't really matter what I gave the patient, that if their kidneys were still working, their electrolyte levels would 
pretty much balance out at the end of the day. Now, that's not necessarily to say it would be an optimal level and certainly wouldn't be optimal for, for performance, but it does speak to the point that if you do put too much of a certain electrolyte in, so long as your kidneys are working, your body will probably just get rid of it. But it is interesting that the... Um, the level of salt intake that appears to be associated with the lowest mortality is probably about four to six grams a day. And that's been shown by some large scale studies. Um, I do notice though, that in my patients um, that you do need more electrolytes when you're transitioning, mm. but after a period of time, once you've transitioned onto a particular diet, that you don't seem to need the same level of electrolyte supplementation and most people will just sort of forget about it and uh, they won't have any adverse effects from it. But certainly in the early stages, um, you do need some electrolytes. And as long as your kidneys are working for most people, you know, if you do have a little bit too much, your kidneys are probably just going to deal with it for you. I guess we should probably mention that, you know, is, is this a concern? Like you probably shouldn't just go and if you're eating a standard Australian diet, standard American diet, you probably shouldn't just go and smash four grams of, of salt right now in a drink to make you perform better. Is that a fair statement to say? Oh, I mean, you know, that would be the epitome of stupidity. The, the simple full fact is that insulin tells yeah. the body to hold on to sodium. Yes. So why do we think that blood, you know, people who eat carbohydrates have higher blood pressure on average? And when you go on a low carbohydrate, the blood pressure falls. It's because the salt, the sodium retaining effect of insulin is reduced. And that's as simple as you could put it. It's exactly what people are terrified of when you go on to because people would say to me you, you shouldn't salt that much and i said mate no what you don't understand is that when you are on this particular diet the rules for how you act on a standard australian american diet don't apply in the same way and that's Absolutely. A, and that's another hurdle that people need to somehow get past because as you as you've said previously you know everyone's thought of exactly the, exactly the same and everyone's not exactly the same you know, when it comes to diet or when it comes to how you – how am I trying to word this? How you are experiencing life, all these different types of things. And, you know, not one size fits all perhaps is the best way to put it. And as you were saying before with certain studies and, and how uh, the Australian government and these type of things recommend salt intake and it's one thing for one group and one thing for a population and there's different ways that people are uh, – a living and experiencing life. And perhaps in medicine, it needs to be more clear that, you know, it's not one size fits all. And that's sort of how it is right now. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, it's not one size fits all, but that doesn't mean that everybody, that a vegan diet, for instance, is going to be optimal for anybody. Mm. So that doesn't mean that we humans have such different physiology between us that polar opposite diets could be the optimal for us. I personally believe that the optimal human diet is closer to a ketogenic diet with animal foods in it than it is a vegan diet. There, I don't know of anybody whose health would be optimal on a vegan diet, and that's a simple fact. Mm. And, I mean, look, so... If we, a lot of the criticisms about animal foods and low carb diets and stuff like that is the duration of the research. And they say, well, we just haven't got enough longer term data. Well, we do. And 
also historically, so when the uh, when they went to America, um, so back in the late 1800s, and they had the uh, in the Midwest the Native American Indians, and they were largely living on a diet of buffalo, and they were in incredibly robust health, and so the 1900 census found that amongst the Native American Indians, the rate of centenarians, that is people who were 100 years old or longer, were or older was about one in 4,000. And this was compared to the white population at the time of one in over 200,000. So the rate of people getting to 100 years old in the, uh, the buffalo-eating Indians was over 50 times higher than in the white population. So, and that, that's quite compelling. But of course, we know not to always trust census data. So you would have heard of the blue zones. So these are locations around the world that are largely plant-based sure. that are purported to live longer and be definitive proof that plant-based diets are healthier. So Okinawa, is one of them. Sardinia is another one, so Okinawa in Japan. So the interesting thing is there's a guy called uh, Dr. Saul Newman. He's from Australian National University, and he published a paper recently uh, that looked at the actual evidence that Okinawa actually has a high rate of very old people, centenarians. And he actually found that illiteracy, so can't read, can't write, poverty, being poor, high crime rates, an absence of birth certificates, and get this, an average short lifespan amongst the population were predictors of higher rates of centenarians. So basically so what he found... They're just a bit off. They're a bit off with their numbers is what you're so saying. What he found, <laughs> well, he concluded that, you know, people who were poorer and had greater incentive to commit pension fraud... Um, so, you know, they might not have accurately recorded their birth dates or they were deliberately um, fudging it. Yeah. And there was something, I think they did an analysis of uh, centenarians throughout Japan. And I think when they looked at them all, they found that uh, something like 230,000 of them were actually dead. Mm. So it was best horrible, you know, horrible, horrible record keeping. There was, a, then, uh, there was this compare- one story... On that, if I could, there was this one story of a dude who basically the the local council was going to give him a gift. He was turning 111 and he was the oldest person in this part of Japan and they are going to go give him a gift and they turned up and his body was mummified on the lounge because he's been dead for 30 years and his family had been collecting benefits. Like it's a smart business decision on their part. Well, it's actually very similar to what uh, Saul found in uh, Sardinia as well, that these other factors, poor record-keeping, falsified birth certificates, is actually behind this whole myth of the Blue Zones. And the ironic thing is, do you know the country that's got the longest lifespan in the world? No. Hong Kong. Right. Question number two, what country has the highest meat consumption in the world? Uh, Hong Kong? Exactly. Right. Okay. Now, you know, we're not exactly saying it's because Hong Kong has marvellous access to the outdoors and they're all exercising or, you know, ever been to Hong Kong? Beautiful place. Uh, But I wouldn't say it's uh, a fantastic lifestyle for everybody who's living there. Um, Now, this 
again, is correlation. So it doesn't prove that eating meat makes you live longer, but it surely puts a nail in the coffin for this, uh, this belief that eating red meat kills you. Let's take, you know, what's the com- country with the lowest meat consumption in the world? I'd say it'd probably be India. Exactly. Life expectancy, 69 years versus 86 in Hong Kong. Wow. So, and the, the average person in Hong Kong consumes 40 times more meat than in India. Right. Could, could that so, be argued with India that it is a, perhaps the issue over there is poverty and everyone, well, not everyone, but there are large groups of people living in extreme poverty. They're not getting healthcare. And in Hong Kong, there might be a lot more healthcare available. They're living in nicer places. Undoubtedly, they are wealthier. But you'll recall before that I said a lot of the world's uh, protein intake is predicated on economics. Sure. So the, the two, this is part of the problem of associational studies. How do you tease that apart? Because mm-hmm. almost certainly most places around the world, meat consumption will be higher if people can actually afford the meat. And there's another very interesting thing about China. So they did back in the 1960s, they did the Indian railway worker study where they got uh, the railway workers from all over the country. So they're all in similar jobs, earning about the same. So they're quite comparable individuals and about a million of them. And the interesting thing about India is that geographically they have very different diets. So in the South, uh, they basically eschew all animal products and they were having a very high intake of vegetable oils at the time. And in the North, they were actually having a lot more fat. They were consuming 19 times more fat in the North than they were in the South. And then they looked at their risk of death and they found that the people who were consuming 19 times more fat in the North were actually seven times less likely to die of heart disease. Now, wow. so that, and so if anybody wants to look it up, it's an Indian railway worker study. Um, but this is, you know, we can learn a lot from these historical studies. There is, from this podcast, a lot of, a lot of information for people pointing to the idea that maybe it isn't meat that's killing people and giving them heart disease. Maybe it isn't saturated fat and giving people the, the you know, prerequisites, if you will, to heart disease. But I guess the question a lot of people want to know, because I talk about this a lot, I talk about the idea of soy boys, the idea that someone becomes less masculine or less of a man, if you will, um, whatever that means, because of the amount of soy consumption. Now, is there any science pointing to soy consumption increasing estrogen or making men more likely to grow breast tissue or shrinking of the testes, those type of things? So, yeah, so it it is known that soy does have some estrogenic effects. So, you you know, whether or not you actually see symptoms of a magnitude that you'll detect in a study, you can't argue the base science that it will actually increase estrogen levels, which is a female hormone. Mm. Um, And these kind of compounds take lavender oil. So there was a case of a boy who developed gynecomastia, a young child, um, because he was having a bath in lavender oil, and that also has estrogenic effects. So there's other chemicals that we're exposed to. So this is not some kind of, uh, you know, random mythical thing that could never happen. We do anything that has estrogenic effects 
has potential to cause these impacts. Also, with regards to uh, vegans and vegetarian males who are having very low fat diets because plants don't have a lot of fat, they need to understand that saturated fat does increase cholesterol, sure. Cholesterol is the base ingredient for testosterone. Low cholesterol levels are associated with low testosterone levels. That is a fact. Is something is tests like the one of the first things you look at for health in a man? It's the last thing I want to look at. Yeah, like test testosterone. <laughs> ah, I thought you were talking about testicles. No, 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 no. But, but hey, fair enough. I'm, I'm glad we have your opinion on that. But as far as testosterone, because I know a lot of men now are taking testosterone replacement therapy later on into their into their older years. Is that something you look at for health in a man uh, early on in sort of a uh, when you're going through how someone yes. is feeling? So. There are several ways we look at testosterone. One of the problems is that it's not just a matter of doing a blood test and saying how much testosterone is in your serum because we've got another um, protein called sex hormone binding globulin that circulates around and that actually binds to testosterone. And the theory is that testosterone is only able to be active when it's been let go by this sex hormone binding globulin. So, But definitely... Um, there are certain conditions that we do see um, very low testosterone levels in. Uh, one of the most common is actually inflammatory bowel disease, which is an autoimmune, which basically means your body attacks itself, um, condition of the gut, basically the intestines and the stomach region. And it's not uncommon at all that patients with this condition will have low testosterone levels and that will improve when they reduce the plant foods in their diet. Mm. On the topic of autoimmune issues, I have psoriasis and it reduced uh, itself when I was on a keto diet. And when I eat a high carby meal, it comes back and I have it in my uh, on my scalp and in my beard. Uh, it comes back uh, with a vengeance when I have, let's say, a pizza or something like that. When I go off the rails, it comes back and it comes back in, um, in multitudes. It's an interesting one to see people with arthritis when they go on a low-carb diet. They seem to find that the inflammation reduces. Um, these seem to be these seem to be the anecdotal evidence that I've seen of benefits from uh, low-carb diets. I know one of my good mates I worked with before I started doing stand-up full-time, a massive dude, like a really quite an overweight gentleman, a great guy, uh, borderline diabetic. Uh, he was measuring his um, insulin levels on a daily basis. Um, and he went on a keto diet for three weeks and was the doctor was stunned, couldn't believe it, but he didn't have the processes in place to stay on it. These are all these anecdotal evidence that I've, that I've seen that the keto diet is beneficial for people and eating more animal products is beneficial for people. And now there are people like yourself that are coming out and actually hitting, oh, hammering it in with stone-cold scientific evidence. And it, it's not just anecdotal. There's... A massive body of literature uh, and there's peer-reviewed science on psoriasis, on inflammatory arthritis, on multiple autoimmune conditions. So, and at the heart of it, it people don't realise that a lot of plant foods have chemicals in them that can cause immune issues with the body. Basically, plants don't want to be eaten. The reason we have anything green outside at all is because they contain substances that we either cannot digest 
or that are relatively toxic or poisonous to us on some level. So, you know, when they have crops that are naturally pesticide or, or pest resistant, pathogen resistant, that's because they have these chemicals within them naturally that do the job. Um, so they're called lectins mm. and they're basically uh, they're um, proteins that bind to carbohydrates and they can do funny stuff to our bodies as well. So one of the most well-known lectins is actually gluten. And we know that there's a lot of autoimmune skin conditions that gluten consumption is associated with. And I frequently observe patients who have these um, strange, undifferentiated, poorly defined skin rashes that disappear when they eliminate gluten from their diets. Really? Okay. Wow. You know, I, I have this more anecdotal sort of evidence. I had my, my old man has a few skin conditions and he started fasting recently and he had a 48-hour fast and he said all of his um, ex- exposures on his back, if you could say, that, like things like boils or whatever they happen to be, he's had issues with those his entire life. These all reduced over a 48-hour period. It's almost like so his almost body. Almost certainly it's consumption related. There's something in his diet that is triggering that. Yeah. So, you know, somebody like Michaela Peterson um, who went on a carnivore diet, a carnivore diet is basically the ultimate elimination diet. So I think she's on something now called the lion diet, mm. which is basically red meat only. So almost nobody will ever react adversely to red meat in these kind of regards. So that's why it's increasingly considered the ultimate elimination diet. And after you, then once you're in a place where you no longer have the rash or the problem, then you can do the staged reintroductions and gradually try and tease out and work out exactly what it is that's causing your problems. I, I will ask this question as well, and I, I might get a bit of flack from it from uh, my beautiful partner, Claire. She she has a bit of an issue when she eats red meat that she ends up on the loo quite uh, soon afterwards. Anytime we have steak or, or lamb or any red meat, she ends up straight on the toilet. So that's quite unusual. So there's probably two things I can talk about that. So first of all, red meat is incredibly well digested. So when I was doing my training, I uh, did some terms in colorectal surgery. And in colorectal surgery, quite often um, after a, uh, a bowel surgery, you direct the intestine out through what we call a colostomy, basically out through a hole in the abdominal wall. And you can actually see what people are eating. Now, it was very obvious that when people were eating uh, fibrous foods, vegetables, fruit, seeds, nuts, these kind of things, then that bag would be full of sludge and crap. But when people would only eat meat, and the patients were smart, they had actually noticed this and observed it, that there would be nothing, the bag would be empty because everything in the meat was incredibly well digested and well absorbed. So, and this is, we know this historically, this whole notion that red meat putrefies in the gut, that could not be further from the truth. Basically, red meat is incredibly well digested. Uh, And it sounds like Claire's not digesting things. So in that situation, you know, is there a, uh, you know, there's, some malabsorption type conditions that can cause cause that. There's also other issues that can cause diarrhea with meat, one of them being a histamine uh, problem. So a histamine 
Uh, it's basically a chemical that can cause inflammation and diarrhea, and it's produced by bacteria, which means in fermented meat. So if you were to have an aged steak or preserved meat like uh, prosciutto or something like that, or were to have fish, because fish, because it's generally not frozen, it's got to come in on the trawlers and it's uh, the cool chain isn't very good with fish. The deep water fish, that's often very high in histamines. That often causes sensitive people to have diarrhoea. So it could be histamines. Um, could be malabsorption and maldigestion. It could also be something else, and this is very unlikely, but um, uh, it was first described in Australia called mammalian meat allergy. And there's a, uh, a protein that we can react to called alpha-gal, and it basically there's a cascade that you get bitten by a tick, and that tick has had a meal on a, on a mammal that has this alpha-gal, and then we react to it. And that can actually cause several years of allergy to red meat wow. uh, in, uh, in humans. So that's an interesting one. But really, uh, I, I don't want to be uh, too dismissive, but uh, if all else fails, consult a doctor. Well, I tell you what, she she's going to be stoked we were talking about that uh, on the podcast. Uh, I'm sure she's absolutely cheering we're talking about her bowel movements. So uh, where are you sleeping tonight? <laughs> well, probably in the studio, I'll, I'll say that. Um We'll let you go shortly, and thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate that. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to bring up before my final uh, question? Yeah, look, probably the environmental impact. So red meat's been beaten over the head because it kills the environment, and that's uh, just rubbish. So um, basically, look, first of all, they say, well, cows fart, and they they produce methane, and methane is 28 times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And that is absolutely true. But what is not added to this conversation is the lifespan. So methane survives in the atmosphere for about 10 years. Carbon dioxide survives for about 1,000 years. So it really depends on the time scale in which you're looking at it. So whatever methane was released into the environment 10 years ago is now, longer, now no longer causing any issues. But the CO2 certainly is. So... Um, I, I don't think people are aware of that. It's a little bit of deceptive accounting. And that and that, then, that was out of the Cowspiracy documentary that that really found uh, fruition in the public mindset. Would, would that be fair and saying? I haven't actually seen that. Okay. Um, well, I, I from memory, and this is this was out a number of years ago, maybe five or six years ago now, that was the big story was methane gases being released into the upper atmosphere and it's creating a a blanket, if you will, and causing global warming, et cetera, et cetera. If it is disappearing after 10 years and that's its shelf life, if, it will, if that's what you could call it, um, would it be fair to say, though, if, if we are continuous, continuously growing uh, the agricultural business of raising cattle, that we are compounding the amount of methane. And even though it is disappearing after 10 years, right, we're still so adding to it. let's talk about this. Do you know how many buffalo used to roam America? There used to be 60 to 100 million buffalo. Sure. So there was a lot more remnants way back than there are today. The reality is that since 1975, the US cattle numbers have shrunk by a third. And wow. Australian cattle numbers have not increased in the last 40 years. Okay. This is fact. So we're not compounding the problem. Now, and also this, you know, so I think as far as greenhouse gases, if we look at it another way, 
So everybody says, well, let's have a look at, you know, how much energy you get um, for per greenhouse gas. And we see that grains are so much better. Well, I don't know about you. I don't eat for energy. I eat for nutrition. Why don't we do an accounting where we have a look at the greenhouse gas emission per nutrient? And in that case, fruit is a lot worse than meat. So, you know, the, the vegetables aren't so good then. We're actually having dairy and meat. When we look at it from a nutrient perspective per greenhouse gas emission is actually quite superior. And I think that's a better way to look at it because we should be looking at our, our food with respect to nutrition and not just plain energy. Now, we also talk about, well, cattle are on land that we could use for cropping. And a lot of the time that's bollocks. About two-thirds of the world's agricultural land is what's called marginal. That means it cannot be used for cropping. Rumen animals are the perfect solution. And then here's the kicker. We are sleepwalking into a major environmental ca catastrophe. It's topsoil. The World Health Organization itself estimates that we have burnt through half of all the topsoil that we've ever had in the last 150 years. And this is only continuing to accelerate. And do you know what happens when we run out of topsoil? We die. You can't sustain life. You can't feed animals. There's no grass. You can't grow crops. Without topsoil, human life ceases to exist. So is that because of the nutrients that's in there for crops to grow? Is that the reason that topsoil is so important or is it because it just, it, when it runs, it, it, I don't know. I don't know what the well, fuck top, you're talking about. Please soil. tell me. Basically, that you. <laughs> so the difference between dirt and topsoil is one you can grow grow things in, and the other you can't. Sure. But one's alive with trillions of microbes, so gotcha. on and so forth. And every time you take a plow to soil, you degrade the soil. So the soil on the American prairie used to be twelve feet thick. It's now measured in inches. Oh. So, and. Basically, every time you take a plow of soil, you expose it to the sun, to the wind, to the rain. You degrade it. There's only one way to restore soil that I know of, and that's ruminant animals grazing. So when a cow's eating grass, some of the root system of the grass dies and becomes part of the biomass of the soil. The cow will defecate. That manure will form part of the biomass of the soil. The water that the cow is supposedly wasting will then be irrigating this field. So with what we call regenerative agriculture, so these are farmers who are not just looking for sustainable agriculture, not in terms of just being able to continue in perpetuity, but they're actually looking to restore the landscape. Uh, and you can do that with grazing animals. Now, overgrazing is no, not much better than cropping. It's not as bad as cropping, but overgrazing will still destroy the landscape but there's ways that we can run animals and graze animals uh, that will actually promote carbon sequestration that will actually be net carbon negative so when you're building the soil so the cellulose contained contains carbon so to build soil you actually have to sequester carbon within that soil the soil becomes a carbon sink so this is that's probably just the last point i wanted to make is that I think people are not fully aware of the environmental implications 
of plant-based diets and this monocrop agriculture where we have to destroy all life on a field and then year by year deplete the soil, this is not sustainable. It, it's almost like throughout this entire podcast, we've gone through every single argument that a you know hardcore vegan who's not doing it for the reason of I love animals, I want to save animals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You would in this podcast, we've gone through every argument that they would use against us and refuted it with scientific evidence. I hope so. Which, 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 I imagine when we post this would be terrifying for some of those people because they would take that as a direct. Um, a spit in the face, if you will, and everything they, they believe in. And I'm sure they'll go through this and they'll cite studies and they'll do this. Do you in any way argue against these people or is it a bit of a waste of time? In some ways it's a waste of time. So uh, the problem is that if we look at probability theory um, and you apply that to two people trying to have a, a discourse, if both people are 100% certain in their own perspective, then there is no chance of that being a productive discourse. And I'm not 100% certain. I've changed my mind multiple times on multiple topics over the years mm. when I've been presented or I've come across evidence to that effect. Unfortunately, I can't say the same for a lot of the vegans I've discussed uh, these topics with. And so whereas somebody is 100% certain, then there's really very, discourse is really not going to be that productive. I have tried to engage some people on Twitter and it can be quite amusing at the level of cognitive dissonance, um, but it, it does become a little bit irritating uh, over time because you keep repeating, you just want a straight answer and you'll just get, you know, a lot of ramblings and a lot of YouTube links and a lot of links to things yeah. that are straw men arguments, things that you haven't actually said, they're arguing against a different point. So in response to this, I'm sure there will be some vegetarians and vegans watching this, and it would be lovely to see them address the question on topsoil. How do you propose we avert this impending environmental catastrophe that might not befall our generation, um, but it's certainly not far away? Yeah, it's my my whole problem with the vegan movement is you cannot argue with them because they have their they have their talking points and much like a religion they will argue it until the end, the, the end of time they will argue against you if you propose one thing they their their comeback to any of the studies that you have spoken about today will be you're wrong. Yes. That's that's the argument. And you cannot argue with that. Because there comes a point where you just go <laughs> okay Whatever, the, whatever you want to the believe. The point of this, the point of me coming on here today is not to convince these people. It's to it's the moderates, the people mm. who are, are hearing this plant-based message and are confused by it and who are taking it seriously. They're, they're the people that we're trying to reach out to. Well, mate, I, I, thank you very much for your time. I'd love to find out more about you, and I, I, I would like to. Do you do you take you take patients? Do you take their blood? You do all that type of stuff. Is that something that you're looking for, or you're flat out? So I'm I'm pretty busy at the moment. <laughs> so I do have a clinic uh, in Concord in Sydney, and I also do some teleconsulting, um, which you can find through my Twitter handle, which is Dr. Paul Mason. Um, but the weight line, I'm not sure if there's any appointments available in the first half of the year at the moment, but there's always cancellations. 
All right, mate. Well, thank you very much for your time. As I get the message from my MacBook that it's about to die unless it's plugged in now. Um, mate, thank you very much. Where can people find you other than Twitter? Straight to your website? So uh, Twitter handle, I do have a website that's poorly updated. There's a bunch of uh, lectures on Low Carb Down Under YouTube yep. channel. So lowcarbdownunder.com.au has a YouTube channel and there's a lot of lectures by myself and by a lot of very smart people. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Mason, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate your time. It has been a pleasure. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.